everyone in the venue and those watching online at Carney E. Free as well, carneyefree.com. Uh, we're going to jump into our series, God's Name. We're in week two of this series today. We're going to predominantly be in Exodus chapter 30, excuse me, Exodus chapter 3. Last week we were predominantly in Exodus chapter 33 and into uh, chapter 34 a little bit. And uh, we started up last week uh, this series, God's Name, in which we looked at this incredible keynote passage that we're going to come back to again and again over in Exodus chapter 34. And it opens up as this great liberator by, by the name of Moses comes before God and he asks God's help. God's told Moses, you're going to go to the Hebrews and you're going to go to Pharaoh and you're going to tell Pharaoh, let my people, the Hebrews, go. And, and, and Moses just like, I, I'm, I'm not your guy. I, I do not have what it takes to, to do this. And God persuades him to, to go ahead and do it. But Moses asked for two things. Do you remember what they were? Come on, to someone? Number one, please go with us. God, we need your presence was the first thing that Moses asked. If you weren't here last Sunday, you gotta listen to last Sunday's message, not because it was great, but because it sets the stage for the whole series. But he, he says, God, please give us your presence. If you don't go with us, nothing else will distinguish us from anyone else. It's the presence of God in you, my friends, that distinguishes you from anyone else. It's the power of the Holy Spirit in us that makes, us, makes the difference. It's not pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's the Holy Spirit in us. The second thing, though, that Moses asked was, God, would you please show me your glory? Can I know more of your fullness? I'd like to know more of who you really are. I already have a relationship with you, but I want to know more of you. And God answers both of those requests for Moses, and then, of course, he leads the people far from there into the promised land. But a couple of people noted to me last week, either after the service and then also during the week, people pulled me aside and they said, Adrian, it seemed like you have a little extra bounce to your step on Sunday morning. And I did. And I do. For you know, a couple of different reasons, don't need to go into all of them. I, I'm kind of rejuvenated. I spent a lot of time with the Lord lately and it's been enriching. But as well, I love to talk about the character of God. I love to brag on God for who he is. I get passionate, I get excited about speaking to the radiance and the glory of God and hopefully, if God so wills, clearing up some misconceptions that people oftentimes have about the goodness and greatness of God which hamper our worship and prayer and our witness. So I do feel a little bit extra bounce you better watch your toes, y'all. <laughs> Hear me now. What you think or feel about God is not, a, is not an accurate barometer of who he is. What you think or feel about God is simply not an accurate barometer of who he is. Now this is kind of problematic because as we noted last week, we all have this tendency to fashion God in our own image and likeness. We have this mental image of who God is and we tend to think he's a whole lot like us. There's a well-known, famous New Testament professor by the name of Scott McKnight. 
and he leads at a conservative Bible college in Chicago, and he regularly asks his undergraduate New Testament students these two surveys at the beginning of a semester. First survey is, what is God like? Uh, what kinds of things does he like? What does he dislike? What's he passionate about? What does he love? What is he angry about? A couple days later, McKnight comes back to his students, and he takes a second survey, and he asks the students the same exact questions, but he asks, what are you like? What do you dislike? What are you passionate about? What are you angry about? What do you love? And what McKnight has found year over year across the many years that he's been doing this is to a 90% degree, the two surveys are the same. People say God is just like me. Now really, again, we see this all the time from people all over kind of fashioning God in their own image. I used to live in Boulder, Colorado. Anybody above been in Boulder, Colorado? Okay, what do you think of? I won't ask you. Okay. <laughs> Contrary to popular belief, there's a lot of people in Boulder, Colorado that really like Jesus. There are. There's a lot of people there that really like Jesus. However, oftentimes their mental image of who Jesus is is kind of a wandering, enlightened, hippie of sorts who is chilling with everyone and wouldn't have a hard word for anyone. And he probably has a VW bus with a coexist bumper sticker on the back. Okay? Because it's a forming in one's own image. Or you think about like the rabid popularity of people like Tony Robbins or Joel Osteen or many others though that I could note who basically are these self-help, self-actualization, health and wealth gurus. And people who love them really tend to think that what God wants most is our own happiness and health and wealth. Okay, do, do you see the connection? So these are preachers, so to speak, who give an image of the way things should be, and people who like that image go to them, regardless of whether that's an accurate portrait of God. Or you think of another example, I'll just give one more. There's, there's sadly, this church in Kansas, and there's, there's others that go to military funerals and picket and hold up signs, and they go to stadiums and do the same thing, listing out all the people that God hates and all kinds of sins that God hates. And if you look at those people, if you look in their eyes, I've seen them, they're really angry people. So is it any surprise that they fashion a God who is really angry? This just seems to be in us. We want God to be a lot like us. Now, here's how you know that you have created God in your own image. He, he agrees with you about almost everything. He really loves the things that you love. He really dislikes the things that you dislike. He's angry about the things that you're angry about. And most of all, please hear me now, He's tame. He's tame. He's controllable by you. But I'm just going to say it again, my friends. 
what you think or feel about God is not an accurate barometer of who he really is. If you're taking notes, I hope you write that down. What we naturally think or feel about God is not an accurate barometer of who he is. Now, I, for one, am so grateful that we serve a God who cannot be tamed. So what we must do is simply receive from him. Okay, God chooses to reveal himself to us, and we receive it. And there is kind of a treasure hunt, well, when it comes to knowing God, that happens across all of life, and that's what keeps the Christian faith so vibrant and joyful, is we continue on that treasure hunt, learning more and more about God across all of our lives. We can always swim in who God is. But it really begins, and we return to it again and again, not with our discovery, but God's revelation. God chooses to reveal himself to us. He wants to reveal himself to us. Get that? The God of the universe wants to reveal himself to you. Exodus 34 is one of those watershed moments in the Bible where God describes what he's like. He starts with his name, and then he proceeds from there to his character. And once again, this is Moses up on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments of God. My son commented last week, after the message, well, Moses actually got 20 commandments, Dad. <laughs> and that's true, because he broke the first 10, didn't he? So Moses gets 20, we just get 10. He's getting the second set of 10 commandments from God, and he's asked God, can I enjoy your glory, and can I enjoy more of your presence? And God says, I'm going to proclaim my name to you, my goodness will pass in front of you. And then our key text for this entire series is Exodus 34, I'm gonna read it, verse five, through seven right now. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and he stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord, which is Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, two times. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining his love to thousands and forgiving wickedness rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Now friends, this description of God was so significant to the Hebrew people that it was quoted again and again throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament as well. I want to give you just real quickly a very, very brief survey of a few of those instances. Psalm 103, verse 8 says this. You'll hear the echoes again in all of this from Exodus 34. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. Now you'll notice up there, the Lord is in all caps, and it's probably written that way in all caps in your Bible. Please note this. Well, when you're reading your Bible and you see Lord in all caps, that's the name Yahweh. So it's Yahweh is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. When it's in lower caps, it's the title Lord, or maybe the name Adonai, but all caps, there it is, Yahweh is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. How about Nehemiah? Nehemiah is rebuilding the walls, and he reminds Israel of the Exodus story and their time on Mount Sinai, and more specifically on the base of Mount Sinai, and God's character therein, he says, they refused to listen, and they failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked. They became so stubborn. 
And in the rebellion, they appointed a leader in order to return back to their slavery in Egypt. That's what was going through the Hebrews' minds at this time that Moses was on the mountain for 40 days. But you are a forgiving God. You are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Do you hear it? That's Exodus 34, quoted in part there in Nehemiah 9. Or how about one more? The book of Jonah. Do you remember the, the, the story of Jonah? God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach the good news to, to Nineveh. Nineveh uh, Jonah does not want to go because Nineveh is the enemy to Israel. And Jonah hates Nineveh. So he doesn't want to go and preach any good news to, to Nineveh at all. And, uh, and God wins that argument too. And so Jonah goes and he preaches, and it says this way, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? I told you this. I knew that you are a, here, Exodus 34, a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than live. He's like, I knew that you would forgive these people, and I hate these people. Ooh, we could preach on that but we're not going to preach on that. This is the character of God. Jonah understood the character of God, and so he was tentative to share it with Nineveh because he knew how forgiving and loving God is to all people, even to those that we might consider to be enemies. Now back to Moses and back to the name Yahweh. Turn with me in your Bible right now, please, to Exodus chapter 3. You might have uh, an app that you read your Bible. That's fine, too. But I encourage you to bring the scriptures with you when you come on Sunday morning as we unpack them together. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles at the back of the room or at the information table. And Exodus 3 goes like this, verses 1 through 15. Now Moses was tending to the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And so remember, Moses was a prince in Egypt for 40 years. Then after that, he sees all the wickedness there. He leaves Egypt, and he marries this woman named Zipporah, who's a Midianite. And he has this father-in-law named Jethro, and he becomes a rancher. He becomes a shepherd. And that's where God finds Moses. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush, Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to even look at God. We'll come back to that in a few moments. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because they're slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and maybe some otherites too. 
And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing my people. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God says, I'll be with you. Anyone ever feel that way? Oh, you're in good company. Who am I? God is with you. Who are you? But God is with you. And that's enough, he says. This will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? Then what should I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, all caps, so Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Yahweh is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Such a good passage. <laughs> and there is so much that we could draw out from this passage that we won't be able to get to here today. But I want to talk with you for a few moments from Exodus chapter 3 about God's name, Yahweh. God tells Moses, I am who I am. In other words, he's saying, all that I am, I always shall be. All that I am, you can count on me. That's what he's saying. My character, it will not change. I am who I am. I want to give you one point here, though, this morning about God's character, and then one point following that about our response to God's character. Here's the point about God's character. There is no duplicity in God. He is who he is. Mm. Let's say that out loud together. In this room and in the venue, please join me. There is no duplicity in God. He is who he is. Have you ever thought that you knew somebody? And it turned out you didn't know that person? Like you really thought that you knew somebody and then you read about that somebody on the police blotter. You really thought you knew somebody and then you got a phone call that you didn't expect. You really thought that you knew somebody but then you heard through the grapevine that they were talking about you through the grapevine. You been there? And if you've been there, what did you feel? My guess is you felt duped. There was duplicity in their character. I thought I knew one of my mentors. And I learned he was actually a cheater. I learned actually one of my friends, who I thought was a dear friend, was a, a talker. I learned that actually one that I was investing so deeply in was just using me. You've experienced these kinds of things as well. And when you have, 
you felt duped. Now, God is not like that. I hope you understand this. There is no faking in his character. His character is granite, and it cannot be manipulated. And so when he says that he's compassionate, like it says there in Exodus 3, you can trust he actually feels. God feels. When it says that he's gracious, you can trust that he will treat you better than you deserve. When it says he is slow to anger, that means he doesn't ever fly off the handle. Any of his anger is righteous anger. When it says he is just, that he does not leave the guilty unpunished, that means he doesn't ever wink at sin. Now, in the modern world, when you want to emphasize something, what do you do? You put it in all caps, say you're writing a note, you're sending a text, you put it in all caps. You make it bold, you put a couple emojis around it. That's how we emphasize something in the modern world. But in the ancient world, if you were writing and you wanted to emphasize something, you would say it again. In the ancient world, if you were writing and you wanted to emphasize something, you would say it again. Okay, stay with me, take your time. <laughs> Yahweh 34, <laughs> Exodus 34, Yahweh, Yahweh. You hear it? My name is Yahweh. Yahweh. Exodus 3. I am who I am who I am. He states it again two times in order to emphasize I am your creator. I am the Alpha. I am the Omega. I am who I am. And I'd like you to know me personally like I did with Moses. Susie and I get the pleasure of leading a Bible study on a weekly basis down at Crossroads Rescue Mission. And it's a wonderful time each week. We were there last week, and as we were leading a study last week, we were talking about some of these very themes. And um, we asked folks um, about the experience of pain related to people being two-faced. And everyone kind of agreed that one of the deepest experience of pain that we go through is thinking that you know someone when it turns out you didn't. And the experience of people being two-faced, that they weren't authentic with you. And they were one way in one setting, but a completely different way in another setting. And I'm not casting stones at anyone as I share this. All of us have this temptation to be one person in one setting and another person in another setting, and we should fight that like the Dickens. But we all have that temptation. And so as we were talking about this, we all kind of agreed how wonderful it is that we have one who is not two-faced, but we have a God who is one-faced, amen? We have a God who is one-faced, that he says that he gives us forgiveness and we can trust that we are actually forgiven by God. That he gives us eternal life and we can trust that through the ups and downs in this world, we have eternal life and nothing can snatch us out of God's hand that he says he will never leave us or forsake us, and because his character is granite, we can trust he will never leave us or forsake us. He will always be with us. We can count on this, that Yahweh is who Yahweh always will be. Everyone else seems to have some two-face in them, but there is no duplicity in God. Now, Jews were so in awe of this, they were so amazed at the holiness and the integrity and the purity of God 
that he was always to be counted on, that they were scared to say his name. So this name Yahweh, the exact pronunciation of Yahweh is, is, is actually lost to history. We're not really sure exactly how to pronounce the four consonants in the name YHWH. Our best take on it is probably Yahweh, but the Jews of the day were so amazed at God's personal name Yahweh that he would reveal himself to them, and they were so committed to not breaking the second commandment, which was do not take the Lord's name in vain, that they wouldn't pronounce his name. They wouldn't even pronounce it. And so frequently they would refer to God as Adonai, which just means God, or the God of Abraham, or the Lord of our ancestors. But they were fearful of even pronouncing his name. Now we might think that's kind of excessive, and, and I do too, but at least they took the creator of the universe seriously. At least they took the creator of the universe seriously. At least they grappled with the holiness of God. At least they didn't think of him as like a tame, cosmic homeboy in the sky. Right? They took it seriously. Because friends, our God is forgiving, but he's also fierce. He describes himself as friend, but he's also a strong Father. He's gracious, but he's also great. He's humble, but he's also holy. He's empathetic, and he's also eternal. He's loving, and yet he's also Lord over all. And so I really hope that you notice what Moses does the two times in these two different passages when he encounters God. The first one here in Exodus chapter three, he encounters God as he is, verses five and six, do not come any closer. God said, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, notice what Moses did, he hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. He trembles a bit because he realizes he's in the presence of one who is totally other. He encounters God and he trembles. Now fast forward to Exodus 34 and look at Moses' response as God reveals his name and passes his goodness in front of him. Exodus 34 verse eight, basic same response. Moses bowed down to the ground at once and he worshiped. So there's this revelation of the character of God, that he is who he is, there's no duplicity in God, and then there's this response from Moses. Revelation of the character of God and response of worship. And this is our part in the message. Okay, God's part is he chooses to reveal himself to us with no duplicity at all, he is who he is, and us, when we encounter God as he is, we worship. When we encounter God as he is, we respond in worship. 
Okay, you are the compassionate, the gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, maintaining your love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet you're also just, boom, worship. Now, many of us, unfortunately, have this idea in our mind that worship is singing. It's not. Okay, singing could be a part of worship. Maybe it's a pinch of worship. But you worship whether you're singing or not. I hope when you sing here on Sunday morning, you do worship. I really hope you do. But it's just a pinch of worship. Worship is like all of life in response to who God is. So worship is waking up in the morning and realizing that God gave you another day. And then you respond in worship. You say, thank you, God. Worship is looking up at the stars and realizing that he's creator and you worship God. You praise him for who he is. Worship is realizing that God has answered a prayer for you. The God of the universe delights to interact with you. And you stop. You don't just fast forward and keep going. You stop and you praise him. All of life can be worship for us. There's this really consistent response in the Bible, though, that when men and women encounter God, they do a lot like what Moses did. Their knees begin to buckle. They encounter God and they fall to the ground or they hide their face, or sometimes they go prostrate. They lie prostrate before God. Other times they just raise their arms. Other times the Bible says someone encounters God, and you know what happens? They can't talk. They weep. Or they say, woe is me. I'm an unclean man. And I live amongst unclean people. It's a sense of reverence, the holiness and greatness of God. Like, just think what would happen in your heart if you were face to face with President George Washington, or President Abraham Lincoln, or Martin Luther King. Like, there'd be something in your mind, something in your heart that would say, oh, he's different. Oh, man, this is a big deal. 100 times that, friends. Multiply that 100 times, 1,000 times, a million times. That's some of the awe that we might feel as we recapture a bit of this, the glory of God, and we worship. Now, I recognize all of this, talking about the glory of God, falling to our knees, hiding your face. It can kind of make you fearful of approaching God. And that's the last thing, though, that I want to communicate this morning, that we need to be fearful of approaching God. He is to be feared. Don't get me wrong. He is to be feared because he holds the keys to life and death. So he is to be feared. He's the creator. But also he invites us to come into his presence He invites us to worship him in joy. He invites us to lovingly relate to him. And then on top of that, as we choose to draw near to God, remember Jesus himself, who is the great I am, chose to draw near to you and me. He came into this world so that we can relate to him. And he applies the very words that we've been reading here to himself. So we sing this song a lot about the great I am, And here it is in Exodus 3, God says, I am who I am. Who is the great I am? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. So Jesus says seven different times in the Gospel of John these I am statements. I am the good shepherd. 
I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. I am uh, the gate. I am the way and the truth and the life. And most notably, he says this as he's tangling well with the Pharisees who are these experts in the law of Moses in the first five books of the Bible. And you know what he says to them? He says, I tell you the truth, truly, truly, I tell you the truth, before Abraham even was, I am. And people say Jesus didn't claim to be God. It's comical. It's comical when someone says that. Before Abraham was even born, I am the eternal, the self-existent creator, Yahweh. He's applying Exodus 3 to himself. As he says again and again throughout the Gospels, anyone who has seen the Father, anyone who has seen me, has seen the Father. I am the image of the invisible God. I reveal the Father to you. And so to look at Jesus in the Gospels, to know that he is Yahweh in flesh, my friends, that is really healing for us. It's the proper mental image that we would have about God. And I just want to kind of wrap up here the way I started. We become like whatever we worship. And so we have to have a proper mental image of who God really is because we're going to become like We're going to move in the direction of whatever we set our eyes upon, whatever the gaze of our hearts is, whatever we think God is like, well, we're going to move in that direction and become more like that image. We're going to emulate that, so we better have the right one in our minds, right? A.W. Tozer famously said, whatever comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And then he went on to write in his brilliant book, The Knowledge of the Holy, we tend, get this, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Wow. We just tend as humans by a secret law of the soul to surely, gradually, slowly move toward whatever our mental image is of God. So we better have the right mental image. Jesus reveals Yahweh to us. He is Lord, and he's also man. And he invites us to enter into a personal relationship with him in which we would actually get to know him, and he would connect with us. We would connect to him in prayer. We would understand what he's like from the pages of Scripture, and the Holy Spirit would give us whispers from God from time to time. He is a personal God. He's not an impersonal force. That's Star Wars. And Star Wars is cool. Okay? Don't get me wrong. But he's not an impersonal force. He's a personal God who invites us to relate to him and to know him by name, who is gracious to us, who is angry sometimes, who's moved with compassion. He wants to know and he wants to be known. Let me just close with these two questions, all right? Two two questions of application and reflection as it relates to the name Yahweh. The first one is this. Are you putting yourself in a position to regularly encounter God as he is? Okay, that's your part. We encounter God as he is, but we have to put ourselves in that position to be able to encounter God as he is. And that takes some work on our end. 
Many of you engaged in that over the course of our Pray 100 initiative, and hundreds of people were moved in their hearts. They experienced God changing them in a significant way. Hundreds of people put sticky notes up here of ways that God specifically answered prayers. They put themselves in a position. You put yourself in a position to encounter God. Amen. Amen. It happened on Sunday mornings, but before you come to church, do you put yourself in a position to encounter God? Like before you come to church, do you sit before God or kneel before God with hands outstretched even for a moment and say, God, I desire to learn a little bit more about you today. I invite you to meet to my need in my heart right now. God, I invite your conviction in my life. Is there someone that you want me to reach out to or pray for today? I desire to worship you today. Here I am, God. Like Moses said, here I am, God. Or do you start your days off that way? Beginning of the day, hands outstretched. Like, Jesus, you are my all in all. This day is not about my eight hours of work. This day is not even about my family. This day is about you. And so I put myself in a position for you to encounter you, the living God who wants to relate to me. That's question number one. Question number two is, what is your mental image of God and does it conform to Jesus? And when it doesn't, what gives? What gives? Is it what you want God to be? Or is it who God has revealed himself to be? In Yahweh. Yahweh. The compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, maintaining his love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Friends, we become more like whatever we behold. Whatever you're worshiping is gonna determine your direction. And ultimately, over time, whatever you worship, direction determines destination are you putting yourself in a position to encounter God and what is your mental image of God does it conform to Jesus let's pray oh father we thank you we thank you for who you are even more than thanking you we worship you for who you are. We thank you for your benefits. We thank you for your kindness, all the good things you do for us. But, but more than that, even when you're not doing good things for us, even when we don't have the things that we specifically want, we worship you for who you are. You are worthy of all worship because you have sent your son Jesus who is the image of the invisible God and in him we see beauty. In him we see the radiance of God. In him we see the perfect human standard, the God-man who gave himself for us and rose again from the grave to give us eternal life. And we know we can count on you, God. We thank you amidst all that we're going through right now, and many of us are experiencing a lot right now. We thank you that we can count on the fact that you are faithful, 
that your character, it does not change. That you offer us your peace through difficult circumstances. That you will never leave us or forsake us. That you forgive us. That you grant us eternal life. That you grant us spiritual family. That you give us the Holy Spirit. Thank you, God, that you're a giver. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness and your graciousness even to us. May we worship you now. In just these few moments of silence, as we reflect on these questions, we worship you. Put us in a place now to encounter the one true God. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.